Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest on this Currents episode is Jim Cohn, a professor in the psychology department at the University of Virginia and director of the Virginia Affective Neuroscience Laboratory. Thanks for having me on your show. This is this sounds really fun. Yeah, thanks for being here. It's been uh, been too long since we chatted. Indeed. To give a you know sense of uh, some of the things that uh, Jim works on, here's a quote from his uh, the website of his lab. High-quality social relationships correspond with longer, happier, and healthier lives. Facts that hold true, as far as anyone knows, regardless of geography or culture. Uh, is that kind of the center of your work? Yep. We are, we are, that's, that's sort of the center of gravity around which all my activities orbit. And many of my, or, my, my activities concern the, the sort of neural mechanisms that link uh, social relationships to enhanced health and well-being outcomes. Cool. Well, let's hop in to, as people know who listen to the podcast regularly, in a Currents episode, we typically start with one uh, item in the news or a tweet somebody made, or in this case, a uh, radio appearance Jim made on uh, CBC Radio, where he said, if the isolation, and I'm presuming that's the isolation, in fact, I know from the COVID-19 pandemic drags on, uh, Jim worries we might be headed for a social recession. So over to you, Jim. Tell us what you meant by social recession. And and this uh, radio quote was back around the 1st of April. Uh, what, is, uh, in, what has transpired since that make you think differently or the same or more uh, compared to where you were back in April? Well, you know, the social recession is sort of uh, analogous or me- even metaphorical, but the but if you think about a, a financial recession, you're really thinking about a widespread decrease in access to financial resources um, for a period of time, for whatever reason. And what I'm worried about uh, when I say uh, social recession is is the, a widespread uh, decrease in access to social resources, and that concerns me because social resources are the the human body's, uh, you know, original currency. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we think about uh, you know what, what I've read about uh, early stage peoples, foragers, etc. You know, they're essentially their life was social interactions. And in fact, one of my uh, favorite theories about the origins of language may or may not be true. There's lots of competing theories is that one of the driving forces for the evolution of language may well have been gossip, right? Keeping track of social status amongst, uh, you know, a group of somewhere between 20 and 150 foragers. Oh, sure. I mean, uh, but, but it, it goes deeper than that. So there, there are specific functions to specific kinds of communication, um, all the way from gossiping at the, at the uh, higher levels down to finger pointing at the sort of lower levels and perhaps more sort of uh, plesiomorphic or old, evolutionarily old levels. But what really concerns me is that when you look at, uh, at the um, prevailing theories 
any of, uh, let's say, half a dozen of them, you find uh, that most people, the, the consensus is sort of pointing us toward an idea that humans are not bound to a, pers- a specific terrestrial environment the way that many, so many spe- species are. Um, that we have, in fact, um, perhaps due to uh, uh, pronounced climate variability in our early evolutionary uh, development, developed two sort of predominant adaptations. Uh, one of them is that we've transcended a specific terrestrial environment in favor of any environment, like literally any environment that includes other humans. So other humans are the ecological niche that we have uh, um, adopted as a species in a, in a process some think, like Richard Wrangham and Brian Hare and others, uh, includes a kind of a self-domestication, like we domesticated ourselves um, in order to become hyper-cooperative, hyper-tolerant of each other around food sources and other resource sources, and um, not so dependent upon a specific kind of uh, geography or flora or fauna. The other thing that this has resulted in is a kind of restlessness. So one of the reasons that we populated the globe so rapidly is that once we developed this, once we transcended specific terrestrial environments, um, during periods of relative climate stability, we were sort of standing around tapping our foot going, where's the change? Where's the change? So we made the change ourselves by, by moving our bodies into new places. The bottom line is that our brains and indeed our bodies, right down to the sclera, the whites of our eyes are functionally adapted to the presence of other humans. They're designed for the presence of other humans, and they don't make sense if other humans aren't around. They don't, they're not useful in any sense. You know, it doesn't matter whether we have sclera around our pupils um, uh, if there are no, no other people around to pay attention to where our pupils are looking. Um, it doesn't help us with the, the, the terrestrial environment in any way. So we are arguing, we have argued that evolutionarily, our brains and our bodies um, emerge, you know, from the void expecting this, uh, this environment of other humans and that uh, one of the one of the consequences of not finding it is that we um, automatically mount a stress response just the same way that a you know that a salamander might mount a stress response if it finds itself in a hot dry uh, climate suddenly uh, because it wants a cold damp climate and it'll turn right over that. The, the whole purpose of the stress response is to get it back to where it's supposed to be. So we know that humans evolved uh, in a social context. In fact, that people who listen to the show often uh, know that I will say uh, that cooperation is the human superpower yeah. uh, that allows us to have penetrated the world. And then we'd say, well, we're close to chimps, but chimps don't cooperate anywhere near like humans are close to something probably around the development of language and other things allowed us to cooperate way more. And as you point out, uh, we have uh, physical mechanisms like the whites of the eyes and many, many others uh, that show that we are deeply uh, social. So presumably 
your argument about social recession has something to do with what happens when the number of social interactions declines. Maybe you could go with that. Yeah. Well, it, but it, so that gets us to sort of proximal mechanisms of how we cooperate. And this is where things get really, really weird. This is where things get um, almost science fiction-y for you and perhaps your listeners, and for me, for that matter, because I didn't necessarily expect what we wound up finding with these uh, 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 studies of, uh, you know, how do you take social support proximity to a potential cooperative partner and transform that into better health and well-being. Our, our results have surprised us, and, and I'm going to explain them to you right now instead of just going on with this dark and stormy night introduction. The thing is, we're not just autonomous units deciding to cooperate in a kind of additive fashion. When humans cooperate, we create synergistic uh, um, effects, emergent properties that transcend the the sort of additive uh, contributions of our mutual cooperation. And um, that's really important because it means that cooperating with another, with another human in terms of labor creates multiplicative effects. We actually, we actually um, create exponential gains, economies of scale, we say in the right in, in our lab's parlance. Uh, not only economies of scale in terms of building model Ts, but in terms of hunting, you know, woolly mammoths and in terms de indeed of thinking, remembering, even our own biographies, we create economies of scale by plugging into social networks. At the um, conceptual level, this is um, Super interesting because it suggests that we are capable of sort of connecting up into units that are qualitatively different than the individual. So group level units, right? We, we um, create groups that have a, a groupishness to them that is not easily reducible to the, the individual units within the group. That suggests in turn that we are, it's not, it's not just that cooperation is our superpower, it's that cooperation is our lifeblood. Cooperation is our hope for survival. We are dependent on cooperation, not merely capable of it. Um, and so again, you can ask, well, what's the evidence for that? This gets into some really strange territory. I've just said that, you know, um, when you know we create these sort of synergistic or emergent properties when we're when we're inhabiting our groups, what does that result in? Well, as any good behavioral ecologist will know, any critter on Earth, and humans are critters. Pardon me. I hope that's not offensive to anybody. Humans are critters. Uh, who have to manage resources, right? So we, when we're making a decision about whether to cooperate or not, or whether to walk up a hill, for example, we are simultaneously making a decision to invest metabolic resources in that activity. And if we're going to invest, there better be some payoff. And it's not always obvious what that payoff is, but these are the calculations that we're making all the time. And it turns out, just at the behavioral or perceptual level, that if 
let's go back to the hill. If I'm standing looking at a hill, I see that hill as steeper than it actually is. Now that's while I'm by myself. And why do I do that? Because, and this is, these are all empirical findings, by the way. Um, uh, I do that because my brain is not so subtly trying to talk me out of walking up the hill. Because all else being equal, it costs less in terms of bioenergetic resources to walk up the hill than to not walk up the hill, right? So uh, I see it as steep in proportion to how much motivation I have to seek whatever is at the top of the hill. Now, I put a heavy backpack on you, about 20% of your body weight, and guess what I find? The hill becomes even steeper in your perception. You see the hill as steeper with the heavy backpack on than you do without it. And you see it as steeper than it actually is, even at a, at a baseline uh, state. Now, keeping that heavy backpack on... Oh, by the way, and we do this again. I want to remind everyone, because the big reveal's coming up, um, that this is about your brain's management, predictive regulation, as Peter Sterling calls it, and the neuroscientist, um, uh, predictive regulation of your body's energetic resources, glucose in the bloodstream, metabolic rate, all of these things. Um, it, it, when your backpack is on, your heavy backpack is on, your bioenergetic resources are more heavily taxed. You have fewer available to you. So you see the hill as steeper, and that means that you're going to require something even greater at the top of the hill before you're going to invest all that bioenergetic work in climbing up it. Here's the big reveal. We put your good friend right next to you. You still have that heavy backpack on, but when your good friend is standing next to you, the hill corrects itself in terms of how you perceive its steepness. It looks less steep. And we've just framed this whole perceptual uh, finding in terms of the brain's management of literal bioenergetic resources. How does it take a friend standing next to you and translate that into a, a, a sort of budget that, it, that assumes more bioenergetic resources? We're not going to eat our friend. I mean, most of us are not going to do that um, most of the time. Well, this is where we have to talk about how the brain creates a model of the self and what the self is. And this is some neuroscientific work that I published back in, initially back in 2013. We have a big replication coming out with a much larger, more robust, and more representative sample. But what we did is we um, looked at sort of how the brain made a model of the self when it was under threat, threat of mild electric shock, and how the brain made a model uh, and sort of responded uh, when we put a friend under threat of shock and then how the brain responded when we put a stranger under threat of shock. And what we found is that w when we put a friend under threat, your brain creates a response and a, and a model of self that looks almost identical to the one it creates when we put you yourself under threat. But that's not true for a, a stranger at all. What we find in short is that the self, which is a neural activity that the brain engages in, it's not a thing. You can't take it out of the head and weigh it and bounce it like a basketball. 
The self is an activity. We self as a verb. We engage in selfing. Um, and as we construct that self, that sense of self, that subjective sense of self that we use uh, like, a, like a measuring device to decide how many resources we have available to us to engage with the world, we include our social networks in that calculation. We include our social networks indeed in that representation of what our self is and contains. And people will, if you look in literature and, you know, song lyrics from the 1970s, <laughs> if you look at um, the way children talk about themselves, we have documented all of these things in various writings. Um, people will say when they're around their loved one, they feel larger, they feel more powerful, they feel taller. And what we're arguing is that the brain is in fact giving them that literal perception, much the same way that uh, a friend standing next to you alters your perception of the steepness of a hill. So extrapolate this out to our fear, my fear at least, of social recession. When During the best of times, when we're uh, around a rich social network, which I will remind you, we think the brain... Uh, assumes is going to be there as it budgets its energetic resources to, you know, to, in its daily activities. When, when under normal circumstances, we're, we're relatively calm. We, um, we tend to budget, uh, more resources toward things like, um, the immune system, growing hair, repairing tissue, you know, um, just dealing with our leaky, the, the, the proverbial leaky roofs of our bodies um, and thinking about things like composing operas, writing books, you know, um, making art, thinking of new ways to put an addition onto your house instead of devoting those cognitive resources to dealing with getting food or avoiding danger. But when we're apart from those social resources, our blood, our brain's blood flows more to those regions that tend to deal with emergencies. And we tend to alter our body's energetic budget such that we're putting more glucose into the bloodstream instead of storing it in glycogen and uh, uh, you know leveraging it to repairing body tissue and boosting our immune system. And that's because we have figured out when we're alone that we have fewer social resources to draw from. Our, our self has contracted and we're going to have to budget accordingly. Mm. We're going to either have to do less stuff or we're going to have to pay more for whatever we do. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes a lot of sense uh, when I think about it. If we've evolved, as we certainly have, in this deep social interactive network that's really an extended part of ourself and who we are, if we detect uh, that we don't have those resources, it sounds like uh, it can happen. It does happen unconsciously. It's just our perception of where we're situated. Uh, instead of uh, being able to uh, apply our bodily energetics to the normal housekeeping, etc., 
uh, it makes sense that we'd go into something like a vigilance mode. Here I am, uh, you know, away from my troop of fellow apes and something is wrong. Something is up. This is not business as usual. And it would, uh, you know, make sense to actually have a separate state for that uh, kind of situation. Is that is that sort of a reasonable way of framing that? I think so. Um, but I would want to keep it focused as much as we can on the management of bioenergetic resources, because this is really key. What you find when you're alone, what your brain finds, and this is often implicit, as you suggested, it's, it's often outside of subjective awareness. Your brain just budgets your body's resources differently, right? So it uh, assumes access to fewer resources when you're by yourself. And that means you have to decide differently about how, what kind of behaviors to engage in because all behavior is costly, right? So if you're going to go, you know, up that hill, that steep hill with that heavy backpack on, um, if you had your friend with you, well, then maybe there's a, there's a cupcake at the top and that's sufficient motivation to go up to the top because your friend's with you. You've got extra, extra energy, but if your friend's not with you, you're going to need like 12 cupcakes, at the top to motivate you to walk up that hill, okay. right? So that's one thing. But the other thing is, um, if you look at it from the other perspective, chances are the number of cupcakes on the top of the hill hasn't changed. So what does that mean? You're just not going to go up that hill. So let's move out of metaphor zone and back into real life. What does that look like? That looks like lying in bed, lying around the house, not going out. That looks like depression. In fact, that is depression. When you start um, uh, going through long periods of adjusting to a world in which you have fewer resources, everything that you do looks like the proverbial steeper hill. It's harder to go to the store. It's harder to put on your shoes. It's harder to get up out of bed. It's harder to go anywhere, do anything. Now imagine that you are, and I don't have to imagine this very hard, imagine that you are a young parent. You've got a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old at home, for example, as I do. And you've got a home school. So you've lost the social resource of the schools and, and uh, daycare. You've got your job. You've got um, no access or limited access to friends, grandparents, babysitters. It's hard for a lot of people to do anything but sleep. Yep. Okay. I, I'm getting it. This is very interesting. So let me see if I can rephrase it, which is one of the things I try to do on the show quite a bit. And then you tell me whether I'm missing the essentials or not, that uh, we pick up a implicit signal from our social context which determines, which drives, uh, you know, deep level energetic uh, metabolic processes in our brain uh, such that we have more glucose in our blood uh, and less of it's used for bodily restorative things, uh, which changes how our brain slash emotional states evaluate opportunity versus costs, a la uh, the desire or motivation to climb up the hill to get one uh, cupcake, in such a way that systematically uh, we are in a state that is uh, not different than being depressed. In fact, maybe that is what being depressed is. 
Uh, is that pretty close to the story in, uh, in two sentences? That's the story. That's the basic story. Okay. So we'll either, we'll either um, be depressed and lie around and try not to spend those metabolic resources so we can devote as many of them as possible to keeping, you know, taking minimal care of our bodies, or we'll mount a full-on stress response so that we have enough energy to get out into the world and do things, and we'll, engage, we'll, we'll subject our bodies to what uh, in our lab we call physiological weathering where we are constantly on, on, you know, on a kind of a slow drip kind of fashion, um, moving through the world without sufficiently protecting ourselves from infection or uh, devoting our, our resources to, to you know, taking care of our bodies. So we, by weathering, we slowly deteriorate. That starts affecting our health. This is, this is why people under chronic stress not only can become depressed and anxious, but in fact, are likely to get sick. In fact, there's there, there, there's a finding you may not know. You may know this because you have a, an interest in this area, I know. But um, the more socially isolated you are, um, the more likely you are to die of anything at all, at any time, no matter where you live or what culture you inhabit. It is the most deadly thing that can happen to you, just about, except for maybe a boulder falling on your head. It's a very bad thing to be suddenly uh, isolated with a little asterisk, and that asterisk is involuntarily. <laughs> There's few, there are a few things more wonderful and soothing and beautiful than voluntary isolation when you have the option to go and reconnect with your social group whenever you want. Then, because social groups are also an investment, and uh, then you can, you can rest from that investment. But when, but when it's involuntary, you are, you are screwed. And that's where we're at for sure, right? Yes. What would we expect to see as uh, implications or ramifications or second order, next order effects from this period of uh, involuntary separation from our social contexts? Well, I mean, one of the things that I worry most about is that when you are uh, overtaxed in this way by involuntary isolation, one of the regions of the brain that is going to be um, uh, fatigued or slowly uh, uh, disinvested in is your prefrontal cortex, your ability to think abstractly, plan contingencies that make sense, etc. So, I mean, in, in effect, you get dumber. Um, right when we should not get dumber. This is a bad time for all of us to get dumber. But, um, but that's one of the things that we can expect from long periods of social isolation. Uh, this is, you know, people, when they talk about uh, depression, one of the symptoms of depression is cognitive difficulties, problems m with memory and so forth. This is the sort of thing we can expect from social isolation as well. Interesting. Uh, let me... Uh Let's move on from that a little bit. That's very good and very deep, very powerful uh, level of analysis. Uh, I w I would, I'm curious uh, what you think about 
that perhaps a unconscious rejection of this phenomena of uh, social isolation and the uh, uh, resultant depression or quasi-depression is what may be driving this earlier than is probably good from a public health perspective uh, reopening. You know, people have uh, an absolute libido to escape this uh, state of social uh, isolation. And if we add add to it your uh, hypothesis that the prefrontal cortex functioning has also been uh, reduced, and you know the PFC is extremely important for planning, particularly things that require multiple steps. And so, if the uh, prefrontal cortex uh, functioning is uh, decreased, the ability to make optimal trade-offs between continuing social isolation, even with some pain and some negatives, and breaking social isolation, uh, so as to relieve yourself of this low-level uh, aggravating depression, and that may be what's uh, one of the main driving factors to this uh, to this perhaps too rapid reopening. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. I think it's absolutely the case. And this is where um, there suddenly there's a huge role for culture and social norms, right? Because um, if your culture is one that's going to emphasize more sort of pro-social behavior, or you have through whatever media of communication, the TV, you know, the newspaper, the internet, um, just shouting across the street at a socially distant, safe uh, 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 space. Um, whether you know, if you if you know that your your broad social community is also doing what you're doing, um, then it's going to be easier for you to do it because it's gonna it's gonna encode a little bit of that I'm part of my group back into your mind, right? But if your group is disposed or your culture is disposed to say, fuck this, I don't believe the government, you know, if you're more of a sort of individualistic culture, I don't really like that term, but um, it'll serve for now. Like we have in the US, I like the old, uh, you know, McLuhan, you know, paranoid culture. I think that was McLuhan then you're going to be a lot more agreeable with just sort of going out and risking infection. Or you might not even realize that you are risking infection. You'll just say, ah, this is all bullshit. And um, you're going to have a harder time resisting that because it's going to feel like an opportunity cost to your brain to stay home and remain isolated. So the more that feels like an, I mean, that's the, that's, you know, this is a little bit of a tangent, but that's what the subjective experience of mental fatigue literally is. Mental fatigue is not literally a decrease in energy in your brain. Mental fatigue is the signal that you get subjectively from your brain that whatever it is you're doing, you'd rather be doing something else. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Let's move on to a adjacent topic, which I'm going to call Zoom culture. Yeah, uh, we all we all know that we're doing uh, that. A lot of people, at least, are doing a lot more uh, virtual interaction. And I will say, as we talked about in the pregame talk a little bit, you know, I'm busier than I've ever been, at least in the last 19 years since I retired from my business career. And most of that is on Zoom. I probably do 20 Zooms a week now, up from maybe 10 uh, prior to prior to the pandemic. And personally, 
it works for me. Uh, I don't find it draining the way some people report, etc. And it may just be my own quirk of quite extroverted personality. Uh, but I like Zoom culture. It's uh, essentially replaced for me that much, much of which I gave up that and a lot more phone calls to especially to my closest friends and uh, my brothers and my cousins and my nephews and this and that. But again, I may well be uh, an outlier. I know that I am in many ways. Uh, give us your thoughts from your scientific perspective of to what degree Zoom culture uh is a reasonable substitute or a partial substitute or may actually may even make things worse. I'd, I'd love to uh, get the uh, neuroscience perspective on this. Well, you know, again, I, I appeal to resources. So how hard is whatever task you're trying to uh, accomplish uh, on when you're using Zoom versus when you're in person, right? And if the, the, the task that you're trying to accomplish is to communicate simple messages to hundreds of people, <laughs> as in, you know, one of these big webinars or whatever, then clearly Zoom is super easy, right? And, and so it's going to be, it's going to feel easier because it is easier, right? Um, but if the task is to um, understand and implicitly react to uh, subtle nonverbals, as you interact with your staff or your boss or, you know, a public official or whatever it is, um, then Zoom is going to make it harder because Zoom is simply, it's like, it's like a, it's like the MP3 file of communication, right? It's just, it's just, uh, taken out a lot of the, the, it's digital, it's digital and it's reduced and compressed digital. And uh, we are designed for analog, right? And that analog creates way more information. And our brains are set up to, to uh, one, respond to that information, and two, wonder where the hell that information is if it's not available. And that wondering, that, that sort of wondering creates an extra process that the brain doesn't want to engage in, right? You don't want to spend more you always want to spend less. So for a lot of people, not you, Jim, but for a lot of people, um, Zoom communications, because they lack a lot of that essential implicit information, they create an extra cognitive process that people have to engage in to try and figure out what they're communicating and what's being communicated to them. Now, if you add in, here's a simple way to understand this, add in the little zoom window that shows you right that reflects you right and now you've added yet another cognitive process because you've got a, a self-monitoring load that you don't have under ordinary um analog communication circumstances this is why i think zoom it's it's useful for certain kinds of projects and for I mean I use it I and I've even found it helpful in a lot of ways teaching courses for example now I know all the names of my students because they're printed in front of me but over the long haul the returns I've said in at least one interview elsewhere are going to be diminishing and they're going to be diminishing in just the kind of uh, economic curve that that you th might think of when you think of diminishing returns. 
let me push back on that just a little bit. Okay. Uh, so I've been watching myself as I've become a more of a Zoomer. Uh, and just to give you a sense of my own uh, uses of Zoom, say, let's say I do 20 Zooms a week, about 15 are one-on-ones. You know, communications with people uh, who you know, reach out to me through you know, having heard my podcast or, or active on my uh, Facebook groups, uh, Rally Point Alpha and the Game B group or uh, lots of old friends, you know, just uh, pairwise interactions. And, and those are pretty good. And then the most interesting ones are three or four small group conversations a week, somewhere between four and eight people. And those seem to go well. And then uh, one a week or maybe two of these large group uh, webinar things, uh, which I find okay, frankly, in the same way that going to scientific, big scientific meetings are just okay, right? Yeah. That the real meat at a scientific meeting to me is the conversation in the hallway and having a beer afterwards rather than yes. the uh, the presentations. And I find the same effect from, uh, from Zoom. But uh, here's where I, where I push back a little bit. Uh, as I said, I've been a Zoomer now with a significant amount of my interactions with the world, but less than currently for a couple of years. And I found that I've developed what we might call procedural memories or, or now unloaded tasks that help me make Zoom better. Uh, you mentioned one, and I, when people ask me, how do you use Zoom without going insane? I say the first thing is never, never look at that little box with you in it. Uh, it's interesting that I uh, discovered more or less intuitively uh, what you could explain from a neuro and body energy perspective, which is looking at your own little box in in uh, Zoom makes you do some processing that's totally useless and pro- may well be uh, net negative, right? Yeah. We don't have that experience in the real world. And why the hell would we want to do it now? So, uh, so don't do that. The other thing I have noticed, uh, particularly in these small groups, which to me are uh, more difficult to cognitively process than the pairwise. The pairwise I look at is uh, a much augmented fo- form of a phone call, basically. So that is something we already know how to do is do long phone calls with our friends and people that want to talk to us. And this is just a better way of doing phone calls. But the small group part, where you really have to read body language and whose turn it is to talk and all those sorts of things. I find that I am now focusing on people's bodily motions way more than I used to. Looking at their hands, are their hands calm on their desk or are they are their hands kind of fidgeting around and they're spreading and opening their fingers, uh, which I think I'm reading now is that, hey, they feel it's their turn to talk, right? Are they leaning into the uh, camera and the mic or are they sitting back with their arms crossed? Uh, and I probably wasn't doing that uh, very much or at least as much on March 1st as I am doing now. So I think that it is possible to learn to build unconscious, so therefore relatively uh, unloaded uh, cognitive processes uh, that allow one to extract a lot, though not all, of uh, the cues we get in, let's let's focus particularly on this small group thing uh, in face-to-face from Zoom. And I'm finding that the small groups are working better now than they were three months ago. Oh, I think we're all getting better at it. But I will say that um, my prediction, if I could borrow the eyes of God for a little while to look at some of your Zoom uh, interactions, would be that uh, your it's not just you that's noticing the f- finger movements and body postures of your uh, conversation partners, but uh, it's also your conversation partners who are uh, spending more time noticing their own body postures and their finger movements and, uh, and et cetera. 
and that, you know, not to get too fancy, but, you know, anytime you have a conversation, you start, you start, especially as the conversation moves on, you start creating a kind of a little mini dynamical system, right? And so all of that gets, all of that's going to get work its way in. The system itself is going to have a kind of cognitive load that um, I, I worry about. Now, I could be wrong. I'm totally speculating there. And I would also say that um, I have found certain activities to be remarkably easier with Zoom. And this is something that I'm going to remember as things, if things ever get back to normal. So for example, one of the things I spend a lot of my time doing is editing papers with grad students. And um, kind of everybody hates that. Students hate it. I hate it. We pass manuscripts back and forth. They get lost. What version is it? You know, when we sit together in a room, it feels awkward to sit side by side looking at a screen together. But somehow doing a Zoom conversation and sharing the screen and looking at the document at the same time, it's just magical. It's, it, it, I, I do it every day now and find it actually enjoyable, whereas before I used to find it horrible. So I don't know. I, I haven't thought carefully about why that is, but I'll grant you that is one area that, that seems like Zoom has made more efficient and um, efficiency if I'm right about all the stuff we've been talking about today, efficiency is the name of the game. Yeah, that makes, of course, a lot of sense. If uh, evolution is what brought us to where we're at, and oh, shocking, I actually believe in evolution, unlike half of <laughs> Americans, <laughs> then uh, you know, energetics has got to be uh, one of the main drivers, uh, or, you know, uh, lower level drivers of, of evolution. We all know the real payoff is, did you successfully reproduce? And everything else is secondary to that. But energetics has got to be uh, a very big supporting pylon in that structure. Let's move on to our last topic. Uh, which is a recent tweet from you, a retweet of a New York Times article. Uh, and I think this plays into an awful lot of uh, what we're talking about, though in a somewhat different domain. And the title of the article was Expecting Students to Play It Safe if Colleges Reopen is a Fantasy. Uh, and the subtitle of the article was Safety Plans Border on Delusional and Could Lead <laughs> to Outbreaks of COVID-19 Among Students, Faculty, and Staff. And this has got to be uh, pretty important in your life at a you know major uh, university that either uh, I don't even know what UVA is doing, but uh, you know react to that. Oh well, geez, man. I mean, look, we're all under all this cognitive load because we've been socially isolated for months. So under the best circumstances, none of us is doing our best work right now. Maybe you are. Maybe you're doing your best work. I don't want to speak for everybody, but most people are not. And um, also under the best circumstances, uh, people who are in the developmental phase of their life that we call late adolescence are not great decision makers, by and large. Um, insurance companies know this <laughs> very well. That's why, uh, and, and we don't know this well enough as a society to keep people from driving, for example, until they're 30. Just what I'd like to do. Not really. But um, let them vote at 16, but don't let them drive until they're 30. But the, 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 the thing is, there's also this terrifying reality that institutions like UVA are facing, which is um, just 
unfathomable um, uh, hits in financial resources. I mean, the millions of dollars um, per semester that translate to support staff jobs, people's livelihoods, the ability to institutionally support research and teaching. I mean, it goes on and on to keep the lights on. And so uh, people responsible for those kinds of problems are in a state of near constant panic, trying to figure out how to get the, the proverbial lights back on. And so there's an incentive for them not to think as carefully about the transmission risk, right? Meanwhile, they're already getting a little bit dumber, if I'm right. Um, and certainly the kids are getting dumber. And so we're, we're, we're all sort of going, yeah, sure, sure, these um, college students can come back and monitor their own health behavior well enough and so forth, just as well as they can keep each other from getting pregnant and from crashing cars. Yeah, drinking too much on uh, Saturday night. Yeah, yeah. Now, I could be giving them too little credit. Maybe I am, but I don't think I am. And also, when I factor in the, the, uh, the, the sort of the incentive that the power structure in the administration here and elsewhere has to, uh, you know, uh, their financial commitments to reopen, um, then it seems to me like it's, it's just there's a lot of pressure to make the wrong decision here. And I think it's going to, there's also a lot of pressure to discount the cost of those decisions for uh, populations outside the student population, not just faculty, but, uh, you know, custodial staff, um, the local community that has nothing to do with the university, many of whom are highly vulnerable, aging or African-American, where these are groups that we know are at higher risk. So, you know, we're not just playing with undergraduate lives here or undergraduate infection rates. So that's, that's my soapbox. Yep. And that, you know, I think you hit it exactly on the head that we're in an adult state. We have crushing financial imperatives, not just for institutions like the University of Virginia, but for every working person. Uh, and then we have uh, the moral social network effects, right? It's, you know, truthfully, if one were an Ayn Randian uh, crazed individualist, you could say we each take the risk uh, and reward for ourselves. But, un- but that is not true. As you point out, we're all connected on a social network and someone who decides to expose themselves to more risk is actually increasing the risk for lots of people around them, many people who they don't even know in the second and third order social network. That's right. So we got ourselves quite a conundrum here. We're not going to try to solve it t- uh, today. And I want to thank you, Jim, for an extraordinarily interesting, deep and uh, perceptive conversation. Thank you, Jim. I had a great time. Yeah, it really was. It was good. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.